Right, well, we might get started. Um, welcome, everyone, to week five of the Oxford Transitional Justice Seminar Series. It's a real privilege to have um, Professor Jocelyn Alexander, <coughs> Professor of Development Studies at QEH, who has had the misfortune of being my course supervisor <laughs> and many of y'all's course supervisors over the years. Um, Joss has taught at Sussex and Bristol Universities and is a research associate at the University of Zimbabwe. She serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Southern African Studies and Cultural and Social History and the Publications Committee of the International Africa Institute. Um, Joss's publications are pretty extensive, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. She is co-author with Joanne McGregor and Terence Ranger of Violence and Memory, 100 Years in the Dark Forest of Matabili Land. And she is also the author of The Unsettled Land, The Politics of Land and State Making in Zimbabwe, 1893 to 2003. Um, more generally, her research focuses on the history and politics of land and agrarian reform and rural institutions, as well as the histories of war and violence, including questions of memory, and finally, crime, policing, and punishment. So a pretty broad range there. She, she examines all of these topics in the context of Southern Africa, particularly Zimbabwe, which makes her more than qualified to speak on today's topic, the consequences of violent politics in Norton, Zimbabwe. Joss, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Emily. Um, and it's so nice to see so many people from uh, QEH here, um, as well as elsewhere. Um, I should thank also Phil in absentia um, yes. for, uh, for organizing all of this. Um, and I should say, just by way of introduction, that this paper grew out of um, a much larger project I'm currently working on, on the history of political imprisonment uh, in Zimbabwe from the 50s up till the present. Um, and it also, of course, relates to my longer-term research on histories and legacies of violence in Zimbabwe, which was largely work done in the region of Matabili Land. Um, this paper is co-written with um, a really brilliant uh, colleague of mine from the University of Zimbabwe, Kudakwashe Chitafiri, um, so um, he gets a lot of credit for this. Uh, okay, so I'm going to assume some knowledge of Zimbabwe's post-2000 crisis, or third Chimarenga, um, so uh, basically that encompassed kind of the process of land occupations, violent political contestation, um, and economic ruin that went hand in hand with both of those processes. Um, but if I'm assuming too much and I'm not giving enough context, please just wave your hand and ask a, a question at any time. Uh, okay, so studies of political violence in post-2000 Zimbabwe have painted an extremely detailed picture of human rights abuses perpetrated overwhelmingly by the ZANU-PF government and its allies, uh, including war veterans and youth militia. <coughs> uh, this violence is very convincingly portrayed as centrally orchestrated, focused on political opponents, and ideologically framed. It's thus very much not the ethnic, decentralized, and patronage-driven violence stereotypically associated with much of Africa, and it has as a result a different geography of blame and accountability, which has been focused centrally on the state and ruling party. Zimbabwean civic groups and human rights groups have been concerned to document perpetrators and victims in a human rights framework. That is, they've sought to establish what Sherry Eppel has called a forensic truth. Such truths are essential in a host of contexts, not least the judicial. However, they can obscure a great deal of complexity in the meanings assigned to violence and therefore its salience in people's ongoing relations and politics. 
Ethel calls for attention to the, quote, local narratives and moral debates over the allocation of blame and the intricate web of actors and artifacts these can incorporate. Such stories are shaped by local history, beliefs, and social and material relations that together work to mediate the consequences of violence over time. Drawing on a study of the town of Norton, we argue that local social norms, practices of political mobilization, and an increasingly politicized and ruinous economy powerfully shape the nature and legacies of political violence in the last few years. We try to make three general points. The first is the rupture in social norms occasioned by the extreme electoral violence of 2008, which, though not one-sided, weighed overwhelmingly on the opposition movement for democratic change. In contrast to previous episodes, this violence rendered kin and neighbors what people referred to as unknowable and shaped their subsequent interactions. Our second point is that political violence, though centrally directed and ideologically framed, was also shaped by socioeconomic and institutional networks and relations of patronage. These had taken on profound importance for people's well-being in the context of the escalating economic collapse um, that devastated Zimbabwe after 2000 and had its real low point in 2008 when the political violence was also at its height. Economics collapse created vulnerabilities as well as bonds and obligations that were important in molding opposition politics and also in determining the costs of activism. For the ruling party, patronage relations were built on the back of state resources and shaped both loyalty and the organization of violence. Our third point is that for activists in both parties, these material relations played a central role in reshaping political discourse and expectations after the signing of the so-called Global Political Agreement in September 2008. And that's the agreement which uh, paved the way for the government of national unity that followed in February 2009. Um, and in that government, the, the MDC, the opposition MDC, and the rulings and PF have sat side by side extremely uncomfortably um, over the last two years. And exploring these issues, um, we've drawn on interviews carried out in 2009 and 2010, largely with MDC activists in Norton, um, but also with a smaller number of ZANU-PF supporters. Okay, so political violence wasn't new to Norton in 2008. Um, the town is home to some 45,000 people and located about 40 kilometers west of the capital, Harare. As in other urban areas, it had a strong MDC presence from the time of the party's formation in 1999, owing to the existence of trade union, cooperative, and civic organizations. Um, and all of those kind of form the backbone of the opposition um, MDC. It also had a big MDC presence because of its close uh, ties to the capital, where the MDC is at its most powerful. ZNPF had mounted violent challenges to the MDC, notably during elections, since 2000, but had been unable to dislodge it. Here, as elsewhere, however, the violence that marked the interim between the parliamentary and presidential elections of 29 March 2008, in which the MDC emerged victorious, and the presidential runoff on 27 June 2008 was unprecedented in the post-2000 period. I mean, really nothing like this had been seen uh, before in this area. MDC supporters in Norton had greeted the announcement of the March 2008 results with euphoria. Many well-known ZANU-PF supporters had initially publicly congratulated their MDC rivals. It was only a few weeks later, however, that ZANU-PF began systematically to organize a new onslaught of violence. The sudden turn of events underlined its centrally organized nature. 
In keeping with many other areas, a military figure was at the heart of the process. A retired senior, senior member of the army, known simply as the Colonel uh, to MDC supporters, moved into Norton's Katanga Township in early June and assumed leadership of the ZNPF hierarchy. His white Mitsubishi truck rapidly became a source of terror. Um, and the MDC activists that we spoke to um, speak of kind of years later still having overwhelming feelings of panic whenever they see a Mitsubishi <laughs> truck, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, so the, the colonel um, organized bases, as they were called, in each of Norton's 15 wards. Xenopia youth, and I mean youth as a political rather than a biological category. These aren't necessarily young people. Um, ZNPF youth and committee leaders ran the bases, assuming military titles such as brigadier and captain, and received support from war veterans and security forces. In June, lists of MDC activists were compiled, and ZNPF youth set about rounding up, interrogating, beating, and torturing MDC activists in and outside the bases. ZNPF women cooked in the bases and brought firewood to them, as well as being called upon in some instances to punish women MDC activists. ZNPF considered a failure to, to participate in the activities at the bases as quote-unquote criminal and deserving of punishment. Many parents sent their children to the bases as protection against attacks on their persons and property. Well-known MDC supporters were encouraged to attend the bases. Once there, they were made to condemn the MDC, to renounce any further involvement in it, and to burn their party cards and regalia in front of large audiences. So this was real public political theater that was being performed uh, in the bases. Voluntarily attending the bases was, however, no protection against violence, um, and even those who denounced the MDC were often severely beaten, as we'll see. Many people simply fled Norton in the face of these attacks or went into hiding. MDC youth did not, however, accept this treatment without objection. In mid-June, they launched a violent attack on three bases stoning, beating, and chasing away the ZNPF occupants before they found themselves outnumbered and forced into retreat. Over 50 MDC supporters were subsequently arrested by police, a response that had been very notably absent uh, in regard to previous ZNPF violence. Further retaliation by ZNPF followed. Norton is a small town in which people are well known to one another. Despite their divided political loyalties, social relations born of kinship, workplaces, neighborhoods, and other associations had worked to constrain, if not eliminate, violence among town residents and to mitigate that carried out by outsiders and state agents. The shocking aspect of the violence of June 2008 for many MDC members lay in what they saw as the grotesque betrayal of the norms that govern Norton's social relations. This violation of what was considered normal behavior had the effect of rendering violence inexplicable. Nathan, an NBC activist in his mid-twenties, explained his experience. He'd pulled over in his brother's car at a Norton shopping center in order to help a friend with car trouble when several ZNPF youths approached and told him that two ZNPF base commanders, Marcus and Brian, wanted to see him. After some time, he drove to the beer hall where the two were waiting for him. Despite knowing that they were directly involved in organizing violence and running bases, Nathan went without fear. And he explained... You see, we grew up together with these guys. I even considered them my big brothers because they grew up playing with my brother. I never thought they'd do anything to hurt me. I actually thought they wanted to warn me of danger. When I arrived at where these guys were, I saw that it was quite a big group of Zenu youths and they were drinking beer. 
Marcus started questioning me about my brother, and his brother is quite a senior MDC activist, and his involvement with the MDC, and that they'd heard that the car he was driving once belonged to an MDC MP. They actually said that we were related to the MP and that my brother was responsible for spreading the MDC, MDC gospel in Norton and for selling the MDC album, which is a sort of a CD of pro-MDC songs. I tried to reason with him, but he then said that my case can only be finished at the base because my name was on the hit list and could only be removed if I went with him, and he would apologize on my behalf to his superiors for my behavior. He even promised that as long as I went with him to the base, nothing would happen to me. At the base, I was asked all sorts of questions and accused of distributing MDC campaign material and for celebrating when the MDC won uh, the parliamentary elections. And in Norton, uh, the MDC won quite resoundingly um, in the parliamentary elections. I was at the base from around 7.30 p.m. to 3 a.m. and was severely assaulted with sticks, shamboks, and iron bars. I was even made to carry a hot pot of sadza on my head. Sadza is a kind of staple food. Um, and was forced to lie down on my stomach whilst they were beating my feet. Around past 3 a.m., I was then carried by this white Mitsubishi truck um, to the police station where the colonel, who was driving the car, told the police that I should be arrested for mutilating campaign posters and for writing obscenities about Mugabe on the wall. Nathan believed that Marcus had paid a high price for his violent abrogation of social norms. He explained, I strongly suspect that he's no longer stable. If you watch him now, he looks like a person who's being haunted by something. And to be honest with you, I don't feel pity for him at all. Every time you go to the shops, he's there looking for money to buy scuds. That's a kind of opaque um, beer that comes in a container that looks apparently like a scud. Um, he surely has no shame. Sometime in April, he came home begging my brother to assist him with transport to ferry his sister's body to the mortuary. And we provided him with a vehicle because I know that he's capable of thinking. He's having a hard time in his own head. Nathan had considered going to a ritual specialist in order to have Marcus bewitched, but he felt bound not to do so by his beliefs and by his long-standing relationship with Marcus. It's just that I'm a Christian, and we grew up together, he explained. In the months after the violence, both Nathan and Marcus struggled to find an explanation for what had happened. Nathan had asked Marcus directly to account for his behavior in the base. He tried as much as he could to explain why he did what he did, and he said it was because we were in a war, and that he couldn't explain what had possessed him to do what he did. And honestly, I think there must have been a bad spirit thrown into the country by Bob, meaning Robert Mugabe, um, that caused people to behave like animals. You see, people had their brothers and sisters severely beaten at the bases. You know another base commander had his younger brother beaten in Ward 7, and you tell me that people were not possessed. This horror at the intimacy of the violence was widespread. Gerald, a senior NBC official in Norton, explained, people were beaten up, houses were burnt, and some people had to run away from their homes. And this was because of ZANU terror bases. These bases were not established by people from outside. It was our own friends, relatives, and young who were in them. Up to now, I still wonder at what happened. This wonder marked the real struggle very many people had in trying to make sense of the violent behavior of friends and relatives with whom they'd grown up and lived alongside. It marked out 2008 as a moment in which people became unknowable to one another and explanations drew on ideas of madness, possession, and the reduction of social beings to an animal status. For some, these acts were unforgivable and resulted in a refusal long after the June violence even to greet the ZANU-PF members involved. Where victims of violence in the bases interacted with their former tormentors, 
They often only did so at the price of constantly reminding them of their cruel deeds, especially if they were asking for a favor or a beer, uh, so as to shame and humiliate them and to underline how little they'd gained from their willingness to use violence on behalf of ZNUPF. In other cases, the madness of those who had used violence was attributed to witchcraft used by their victims, people less uh, restrained than Nathan had been. One such no notorious case involved the ZNUPF supporting woman who worked at the town council and had established a reputation for cruelly beating MDC women. She was widely rumored to have gone mad in early 2010 due to her victim's use of witchcraft and was thereafter commonly found wandering around the shopping center. Understandings of the meanings of acts of violence in Norton in 2008 powerfully shaped their consequences for individuals and for social relations. Because these acts were understood to abrogate highly valued social norms among neighbors and kin, they were rendered inexplicable and unforgivable in varied ways, leaving in their wake profound obstacles to the reconstitution of social relations expressed in the mediums of ostracism, witchcraft, madness, humiliation, and the constant retelling of tales of cruelty in daily interactions. If social norms and their rupture shaped the consequences of this violence, so too did the implications of political violence and economic relations. Um, so let me turn to kind of the relationship between patronage and material relations in politics. For the MDC and Norton, the provision of material and other forms of support demonstrated the party's ability to care for its own in the face of arrests and violence. Such acts were important to the MDC's identity and to its capacity. In order to play this role, the MDC relied on mobilizing both individuals and a wide civic network so as to gain access to funds, legal and medical expertise, and other resources. In 2008, the combination of violence and the contraction of economic opportunity, and this really was the kind of bottoming out of Zimbabwean economy in 2008 with you know, kind of thousands and thousands of percent inflation and all the rest of it. Um, those pressures placed um, such relations in jeopardy and rendered MDC activists acutely vulnerable. On the other hand, ZNUPF's use of material resources was very different, um, but equally crucial to its identity and to its capacity. It relied on the state's assets and the state's ability to control assets, and it deployed its resources to encourage and to coerce performances of loyalty and, crucially, to mobilize violence. ZNUPF's use of state resources for political purposes is, of course, very well known. Our point is to emphasize the ways in which such practices were woven into the organization of violence, creating particular kinds of incentives, expectations, and relationships. A key source of jobs and livelihoods in Norton in the late 2000s was the fishing industry. It had grown in importance as other key industries, and there were a whole series of, kind of industrial enterprises in Norton um, that went into decline in the 1990s and 2000s if they didn't shut down uh, altogether. The number of fisheries mushroomed from two to over 16 after 2005. These cooperative-run enterprises relied on two nearby dams. Many people from Norton made their living either as members of the cooperatives or by purchasing, purchasing fish from them for resale. From the mid-2000s, the award of licenses to cooperatives came increasingly under partisan control as senior ZANUPF leaders sought to reward ZANUPF youth for their loyalty and what they called activism, um, which was defined as a willingness to engage in political violence. Through publicly performing their loyalty in this way, some youths gained much coveted direct access to cooperative membership. Those not lucky enough to receive licenses were given preference in buying fish from the cooperatives. 
NDC members were increasingly excluded from both the cooperatives and from buying fish for resale. Zanapia forged a link between coercive politics and access to resources in other spheres too. Important among them was access to market stalls. Before 2008, Zanapia's attempts to exert control over market stalls resulted in the eviction of some traders and violent conflicts. In the period of extreme violence in 2008, Zanapia's use intervened far more directly, vetting stallholders for their loyalty and leaving them with the options of losing their livelihoods physically defending themselves from attack or publicly expressing their support for ZNPF. Most opted for the latter. Physical battles could not be won in 2008, and the economic costs of losing a stall might threaten an extended family's very survival. The extreme food shortages and high food prices of these years made another resource crucial to survival, the Grain Marketing Board Depot. Norton is home to Zimbabwe's second largest depot. In the late 2000s, NUPF developed a practice of granting local cooperatives the right to procure maize from the depot and mill it for sale. Those actively aligned to NUPF were given privileged access. A final significant source of patronage was the town council. Access to jobs and other resources such as vehicles also increasingly re required demonstrating support for the ruling party. Belonging to NUPF or simply feigning support for it became a matter of survival for many ordinary people as forging livelihoods beyond ZNPF's grasp became more and more difficult. In 2008, the newly arrived colonel made a point of loudly bragging about his access to the GMB stores and other resources, thereby marking himself out as a political patron, willing to build relations with clients on the back of access to state resources and violence. The MDC's attempts to protect its support and its activists had to draw on other resources. Some of the few remaining privately owned industrial concerns in Norton were crucial to particular groups of MDC activists who had started out in the trade union movement, um, particularly a furniture building uh, enterprise. But many MDCs worked outside state-controlled networks and formal employment, eking out a living in the increasingly precarious informal sector, selling bread or cell phone airtime, illegally working as fishmongers, and making a living as itinerant carpenters or cross-border traders. The MDC, both locally and from its national headquarters in Harare, and with the help of a network of sympathetic civic organizations, made great efforts to support activists when they were injured, arrested, or otherwise in need. Activists were nonetheless extremely vulnerable in 2008 due to the combination of intensifying political violence and the rapidly deteriorating and politicized economy. This vulnerability constituted a threat to the MDC's capacity to sustain the bonds of obligation and care that were essential to its identity and its organizational capacity. MDC leaders in Norton felt responsible for the hardships suffered particularly by the youth who bore the brunt of ZNPF violence. After the arrest of a large number of MDC youth following the attack on the ZNPF bases in mid-June 2008, Gerald explained, we were devastated as a party and as individuals. These are not only active and committed members of the party, but also our young brothers. You know MDC members in Norton are a close-knit community. We decided as a district to pool our resources together to assist them. The unfortunate thing was that at that time, most of our people had been displaced and some had gone into hiding, so we were a bit handicapped. I mean, he's always using this huge understatement. We were a bit handicapped uh, in terms of how we could collectively assist the boys. We looked for lawyers for them and made sure they got food and that their families were catered for. We tried to liaise with the police officers who were sympathetic to our cause, and they were many, by the way. 
but they had limited options and powers in terms of how they could assist us. We did the best we could as a party, but the ZANU-PF machinery at the time was vicious. And remember, we also feared for our lives. And this meant that our movements, and hence the ability to mobilize, was severely handicapped. Gerald emphasized the role of material exchanges as expressions of solidarity, sacrifice, and kinship. The MDC youth were his young brothers. Failure in maintaining these bonds was keenly felt. In 2008, the price of opposition in Norton was paid not only in monetary forms, but also in the currency of health, relationships, and social standing. When we asked three young male MDC activists what effects political violence had had on their lives, they focused on the bleakness of their futures and their personal relationships. These three young men had suffered violent attacks and had spent more than a month in the police cells in Norton and in Harare Remand Prison in mid-June 2008 on charges of involvement in the attacks on the bases, and in fact they, they were involved in the attacks on the bases. Um, in prison they suffered from lack of food and were subjected to the disease-ridden, overcrowded conditions and constant threats of physical and sexual abuse typical of prisons in this period. When we interviewed them in early 2009, they were out on bail and were required to report to the police station in Norton every Friday and to the court in Harare every two weeks. The devastating effect of these experiences emerged in its many dimensions as they exchanged thoughts on their lives. Um, and I'm just, this is a kind of exchange between Maxwell Thomas and Benjamin. So Maxwell started out, um, this is affecting us seriously. We don't have a plan to work for ourselves. We see our future as bleak. The bail conditions restrict our movement. Thomas is a freelance carpenter and he works around the country, but now he has to work just in Norton because of having to report to the police. Thomas' business is affected and that affects the rest of us. He used to subcontract to us and now he can't, so it has terrible effects on our financial situation. And then Benjamin added, since 27 June, my business, as a, he was a mobile um, bread seller in Norton, has been disrupted and I lost capital because of the transport fees to appear in court. We're now failing to take care of family. We're being punished. Maxwell, for me, the pain is physical. <coughs> Before going to prison, I enjoyed sports, running, but when I try to jog, I lose breath. I have pain in the chest. My strength is drastically reduced. And you blame that on the kind of dirty blankets in uh, the prison. Thomas, I developed an irritation on the skin, spots, and psychologically I haven't dealt with the loss of income. My business collapsed. It took me a long time to find my footing again. Benjamin, for me there are three effects. On the political front, as a youth leader, some of the youth lost their initiative and drive. Morale was affected. And it's had a huge impact on my health. When it's hot, I get skin irritations. I'm always used to hard work, but now I'm limited in how hard I can work. I can't work at the same level. Maxwell, after we were released, I went home to find I was homeless. We were renting this place and my property had been destroyed, the bed broken, clothes burnt by ZANU-PF youth. My wife went back to her parents. I couldn't find a place to stay. People were afraid to let me stay, that their house would be destroyed. So I had to search for accommodation and food. That was one of the most traumatic experiences of the whole time. Benjamin, I was supposed to have married a specific girl, but I lost her when I was in jail and I'm trying to deal with that up to now. Maxwell, the biggest problem I have is I lost property in my birth certificate and national ID and school certificate and passport. I haven't recovered from that. Such things are so difficult to acquire now. Thomas, I lost my carpentry tools. Some were taken to relatives. I haven't been able to find them all. Maxwell, the harassment also overlapped with my mother. 
She was taken to the base and made to cook food for three days and harassed and made to shout slogans and to swear she would put rat poison in my, fo- in my food when I came home. We have Ngozi, which is a kind of um, avenging spirit. If your mother is harassed on your behalf, it hangs on you and affects your future. Maxwell was required to make a payment to his mother's relatives to be rid of these terrible consequences, but couldn't afford to do so. Maxwell's case had echoes in others where the costs of opposition political activism weighed heavily on family members. Wives and children were often rendered vulnerable. Maxwell's wife had found herself not only in danger, but homeless and without an income. She had gone back to her parents as a result. Benjamin had lost his fiancée and remained brokenhearted. Others told similar stories of family losses, division, and anger. For Mary, the cost of her husband, Christopher's MDC activism, had been devastating. She explained how she'd fled to her husband's parents in Dhammashawa, which is another area outside Harare, uh, in fear for her children. She'd returned when Christopher was arrested. I cried endlessly. I thought he was going to be killed. I cursed God for getting us into trouble. Mary was helped by Norton MDC leaders with money to buy food to take to her husband at the police station each day and to feed her family. She spoke to Christopher about family and her welfare. But we really didn't say much, Mary explained. I was crying, and he was crying, and they were always watched by policemen. The situation worsened when Christopher was moved to Harare Remand Prison, as Mary explained. We heard stories of how MDC people were being killed and kidnapped and how those who were being sent to jail were not going to come out. I also had to make plans to go see him there, and I couldn't manage to do so in the first week. I then moved to a township in Harare to my sister's house and would walk to Reman Prison almost every day. And these are really long distances she's having to cover. Unfortunately, um, we, we got food from the MDC headquarters, which we could eat whilst waiting to see him. But I couldn't continue staying there because my sister only uses two rooms and she has a family. I went back to Norton and had to depend on um, MDC people for news about their welfare and their case. I also started to have problems at the place we used to stay because they were no longer comfortable about staying with MDC people. And you can imagine, the person who owns the house is my, my guru, which is her older sister to Mary's mother. Um, and she supports ZANU-PF. She was now th- saying that she had always told uh, Christopher not to support the MDC and now look what it's gotten him into. She was defending herself, saying she didn't want her house to be burnt, so she couldn't have us continue to stay, staying at her place. We had to move, and I had no money to do so. My property ended up spending weeks outside. I was also supposed to feed the family, and how was I going to do that with no money in the pocket? While Christopher continued to receive food from the MDC while in remand prison, support for his wife dried up as arrests and harassment of MDC supporters who were Christopher's friends prevented them from providing food and money and the Norton MDC's funds ran low. The consequences of political violence thus reverberated through people's lives and relationships in and after 2008. They stretched the bonds built through through material care by the MDC. They endangered, divided, and impoverished families and broke romantic relationships. They destroyed livelihoods and robbed people of their property and papers and homes. They weakened bodies, and they caused spiritual harm. The range of these consequences flowed not just from the individual acts of violence themselves, but from the ways in which they interacted with productive material and social relations in Norton and within and between ZANU-PF and the MDC. Um, So let me just turn very briefly to um, violence and politics um, after the kind of institution of the unity government. 
When we asked male MDC activists how their losses had affected their commitment to the MDC, they without exception said it had strengthened their passion and loyalty. I mean, this is a very strong party line. You know, no one says violence ever put them off anything. Um, when we asked them what should be done with perpetrators of violence, they absolutely unanimous, unanimously said they should be prosecuted in the courts. As Gerald put it, those who committed crimes should be answerable for their crimes. Simple. Such statements were important indications of intent and of expectation. But they didn't tell the whole story of political discourse among MDC supporters after the installation of the unity government. In 2009 and after, a new and uncomfortable set of stories and debates emerged among MDC's stalwarts and their at times less than enthusiastic kin. These hinged on the nature of debt and obligation now that the MDC was no longer an opposition movement but held government office and had access to state institutions and resources. In this new context, rumors of corruption and broken bonds peppered stories of dashed expectations. Mary, who is not herself an active NBC supporter, explained, I've suffered enough for this party and I wish Christopher, that's her husband, um, could see it. Right now I don't even know where I'm going to get money to pay rent for the end of this month. I sell fish but the money's not enough to keep us in the family. We hear there's been food and money which has been donated to us from some MDC senior members, but the food doesn't get to us. Musumbu, who's the MDC MP for Norton, is busy spending the money. That's very unfair to suffer so that some people can feed their families using your name. I've always told Christopher this and he doesn't listen. Until when are we going to suffer for the party so that some people can enjoy? Right now there's been talk about starting a fishery for us and it's been six months and nothing has materialized. Even MDC is just as corrupt as Zanu, especially Musumbu, who's the MP. He doesn't care about the people who fought to have him voted into power, and I think he needs to be told that he won't get our votes next time if he continues to do that. The party should at least have given them money for projects. They know they're not employed and are people who worked very hard for MDC and Norton, but they leave them to suffer. Christopher has always been a person who survives from using his hands but his tools and everything was either lost or destroyed during our suffering, so he was nowhere to start from. Mary swore she would never vote for any party, but she despaired of changing her husband's views. It's pointless to do that because they won't listen. He loves the MDC and I don't even know why. He may complain and he may tell you that they have let him down, but he will always love that party. Despite his continued devotion to the MDC, Christopher's views were not in fact so different from those of his wife. He also believed that the institution of the inclusive government and the access it promised to resources and employment meant that the MDC should take care of those such as himself who'd suffered most in the violence of 2008. He felt deeply aggrieved by what he saw as the Norton MDC MP's corruption and betrayal of his obligations, a view fueled by rumors of goods being siphoned off and access to patrons denied. And he said, when we were prisoners, we knew we were prisoners and we could do nothing, but now we're more imprisoned because of the MP. Because even another MP who wanted, wanted, wants to help us cannot do so because when we go to our MP, he simply says that things are difficult. But we then hear rumors that he actually took stuff that was meant for us to his rural area. We gave him an avenue that he now uses to get commodities for himself. I think the MP is the biggest problem because when we go to him with ideas on how he can help us, he simply uses them to his benefit. We even told him that as an MP, why don't you try to find us jobs in the town council since it's now being run by MDC? But all he says is that the council is facing a lot of problems. So where can we work? Why then don't you get us jobs in other companies? 
but nothing materializes. You actually hear that another person who never went through what we did has gotten a job or has benefited. If only he could just take food and the stuff that's meant for us and use it for himself, but then give us jobs so we could earn a few dollars. That could be better. But right now, we're stuck. These narratives of betrayed obligations contrasted starkly with the solidarity of the pre-unity government period when the NDC was seen by activists, if not always by their families, to be helping to the best of its ability. There are also stories of blocked progress. Christopher is stuck, and he was even taunted by some for having foolishly suffered for nothing. Christopher blamed his misery and inability to progress not on ZANU-PF, but on the MDC, and specifically his MP. He's supposed to be there for us, representing us, but he's the one who's making life difficult for us. This political discourse was born of the real existential crises that so many young MDC men faced in the aftermath of the 2008 violence. It marked a shift to a language of patronage in which material obligations were no longer constructed in terms of kinship, sacrifice, and solidarity among opposition party members, but as debt owed for suffering now payable by a party in power. For ZANU-PF, neither the language of patronage nor access to state office and resources were new, but there were also angry ructions within the party over the formation of the unity government. We interviewed very few and mostly junior ZANU-PF members. Um, it was very uh, complicated and difficult to do so. Um, but those we did speak to harbored feelings of bitterness. Two ZANU-PF youths, Morris and Samuel, both of whom worked maintaining irrigation equipment on a farm near Norton, explained that they'd fallen out with Norton's ZANU-PF hierarchy. They'd been arrested in mid-August 2008 on charges of rape and causing grievous bodily harm in the bases during June. Both were out on bail. They claimed they were innocent and had been made scapegoats by the more senior ZANU-PF men and women uh, who'd been involved in the crimes, notably Norton's youth chairman and his wife, who were uh, notorious. Samuel explained that he believed they'd been targeted because they were seen as backward farm workers and so dispensable in contrast to the more favored town boys of ZANU-PF. As proof of their victimization, the two men said they'd been struck off the membership list of a recently created fishing cooperative by the district youth chairman's wife. Morris asked that a message be passed on to the youth chairman. If he continued to behave in this way, Morris would resort to the use of witchcraft against him. And he asked us to, to tell him that. <laughs> Um, another group of three ZANU-PF supporters we talked to were less willing to criticize openly the party leadership, but they also noted at length their reduced circumstances and the failure of the party to support them, either when they'd been imprisoned uh, in an earlier incident or in their current circumstances. One contrasted the support given to MDC activists with their own situation, in which ZANU-PF did nothing to help them. He whispered at the end of the interview that he felt betrayed. Some ZANU-PF members, at least, have been left in an awkward place. On the one hand, as we've seen, ZANU-PF youth and others who had been prominently involved in violence in 2008 often faced extremely difficult relations with the neighbors and kin they'd once tormented. On the other hand, senior ZANU-PF leaders in Norton who had lost their offices, that is, their elected um, positions, though not necessarily their access to state resources, no longer felt they owed them the wages of violence or indeed anything at all. This doesn't, of course, mean that such men cannot be mobilized again and on exactly the same basis as indeed they have been uh, in recent months. The narratives of obligation and blame created by histories of political violence in Norton have had multiple 
and shifting effects on social relations among kin and neighbors and on political relations between them and their leaders. The violence of 2008 was organized from the center and very efficiently targeted opposition members, but it was interpreted through the prism of Norton's social norms and took on meaning as a result of being seen as an almost inexplicable moment of rupture. This view powerfully shaped its ongoing consequences for social relations, played out in stories about madness and witchcraft and in retaliatory humiliations and exclusions. The high costs of violence for opposition members with implications so, for so many aspects of their lives and relationships were born of the links between coercive politics and people's livelihoods. The MDC's ability to care for its own was undermined and its members' vulnerability greatly exacerbated with terrible and far from resolved consequences. Zenopf's backers were drawn voluntarily and not into an exchange of violence for material reward orchestrated with military ruthlessness though often with no lasting benefits and sometimes with very real costs for the rank and file. For both parties, the unity government brought new challenges, but they were perhaps most difficult for the MDC, whose leaders found their bonds with followers, once constructed as kin, had been converted into a currency of patronage payable for suffering endured. In the era of the unity government, they struggled unconvincingly in the eyes of many of their supporters to respond. Thanks very much, Josh.